the idiots only out when dad's driving. True story. So if we look at ourselves, when, when you're confronted with frustration or, or anger or when your neighbor or a perfect stranger is hurting, how do, how do you react? How do we react to that? Is it, is it with love and grace? Because if it was just that simple to replace anger and frustration with love and grace, we'd all be doing it, right? And Jesus wouldn't have had to go to all the trouble of issuing that greatest command, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. I mixed the order of that up. Sorry about that. And to love your neighbor as yourself, because that's the golden rule. The problem is that we misunderstand love, but the modern world has developed a skewed understanding of what love is. We learn that love is something that we deserve. It's something that we feel entitled to, that we desire. But what we're not often taught is that loving is something that is first to be given. And when we love correctly, we put the loved one first. We put their needs and their well-being first. We shouldn't love others with the expectation of anything in return, but we do. And real love is putting others first, everyone ahead of yourself. And I know we naturally tend to think, well, if we did that, we'd get nowhere in life. We, how can we look after ourselves? How can we look after our family if, if we're always putting other people first? And you know what? They're really valid questions and concerns. But consider this. How many of us here have children? How many are parents? When that little bundle of joy invaded your life, who came first? In the middle of the night when you were exhausted and you were more tired than you ever thought possible, who came first? Did you just roll over and say another few minutes sleep before I feed the baby? No, you didn't. You got up. You fed the baby. You put its needs first. Or when that child needed school supplies and clothes to start school, did you wait to the end of the month to see how much money was left over? No, I don't think you did because you put the child first. Or if that child was in harm's way, is there anything you wouldn't do to get between harm and your child? Of course not, right? That's love. But there's different types of love. There's a lot of different types of love, and the Bible helps us to understand how to apply them in our lives. So we're going to take a little look at that here. And um, the Bible that we have today is, as most of you know, a translation from Hebrew and Greek. And it's, it's really important to keep that in mind as we read through it, and especially here as it pertains to love, because in English, we have just one word for love. But in the Greek, there were up to seven words that describe love. And the Bible used about two to four of them, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading. And, uh, and that's really helpful for us when we try to understand that there are different types of love. And, you know, as, as an example, the love that I just talked about between a parent and a child would be known as storia in the Greek. Um, another one is eros, and that's uh, the type of love, a passionate love between a husband and a wife. And I mentioned that just to sort of uh, to visualize all the different degrees of love and how complicated they can be. After all, it wouldn't be appropriate for us to love everybody in the same way, right? We can't love everybody in the same way that we love our children or our spouse. That would just be weird. You know, we can't love a dear friend in the same way that we like family because we're probably always going to put family first, right? A third type of love, and this is the one I want to focus on today and, and for the rest of this series, for the next two weeks, and it's agape in the Greek, and it's the hard one. Because agape is a, a universal love. It's, it's the love that you would have 
for God or for nature uh, or a stranger. It's that broader brush. It's, it's the love that Jesus had for us, and it doesn't require the familiarity of family or friend. It's, it's more global in nature. You know, it's, it's the love that you would have for that guy that just flipped you the bird in the car and when you pull up to him next to a stoplight with your window down. That's agape. How are you going to agape that guy? So there are these different forms of love. and They're all unique, and they're all very capable of intermingling together and complicating our lives. And so how do we, how do we see these different forms of love, and what did Jesus teach us about these and how to apply them to our to our love? our lives. And I don't think there's another subject in the New Testament of the Bible that's greater than love. It's why Jesus went to the cross. Love is what Jesus wanted us to know above all else. And he showed us the ultimate sacrifice by going to the cross for us. So we need to understand what he meant when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. So we're going to spend the next three weeks looking just at that and the importance of that command. And if we're going to do that, we need to have some evidence or some proof that it is singularly the most important behavior that God desired for us. So let's look at how Jesus delivered that command to us. One of the terms that we hear over and over in the Bible is covenant. And a covenant is basically a deal uh, between God and his people in a biblical context. It's either a specific people, such as the uh, the Israelites, the Old Testament, uh, or it's everybody, all people, you and I. There's seven of these covenants in the Bible, Old Testament and New, uh, seven separate deals that God made with his people. And four of these deals were specific to the Israelite nation, and three of them, the remaining three, are covenants for all of mankind. For, uh, and these, these covenants all carry the name of the person they were entered into it with. So, for example, there's the Adamic uh, after Adam, regarding uh, perpetual sin. Uh, the Noahic, after Noah, uh, regarding the flood. And then there's the, the new, the new covenant from the New Testament. And for this discussion, I'll concentrate on the last of those, that new co covenant, because it's the new covenant that was the final deal that God made with us to forgive our sin. And it was the final deal that God made with us to forgive our sins and allow us an everlasting relationship with him. So this deal is about as big a deal as there is. And God sent us his son Jesus as a human to deliver it via this new covenant that we're going to talk about. And I'd like to establish uh, the importance of the validity of this new covenant. And if you're new to Christianity or you have questions about you know, who Jesus was or his authority as the son of God, I'd like to spend a minute looking back into the Old Testament for proof that Jesus was who he said he was and that he did indeed have the authority uh, of God to go ahead and make this deal with mankind, this new covenant with mankind. The Old Testament is a treasury of examples and accounts of how mankind was meant to function in accordance with God's will for us. But it's also a testament. And I don't think we often reflect enough, no, I don't, on the name of those two divisions of the Bible, Testament, Old and New. A testament, by definition, is a sign or evidence of a fact. So as we read a testament, we should be looking for validation of something, testimony. And so for today's message, 
We're going to go back about 600 years before Jesus was born. We're going to look at a guy named Jeremiah. And uh, Jeremiah foretold of the coming of Jesus and this new covenant. Jeremiah was a prophet, and he wasn't the only one. There were many, many prophets. And the role of a prophet was to foretell God's plan for his people. So if enough prophecy uh, came into being, it was pretty good validation or testament, if you will, to those events. And the verse we're going to look back at uh, today, um, Jeremiah is foretelling the restoration of the Israelite nation after the exile, and in particular, the coming of this new covenant. And to give that some context, the Israelites uh, are the, the Jewish believers in God at that time. They had been overrun by their enemy. They'd been decimated and destroyed. They were being kicked out of the Holy Land um, that they had tried so hard to get to. They were basically exiled forever as slaves to their enemies. So these folks were downtrodden. They were, uh, you know, hopeless. They were basically done having given up. They'd lost everything due to their lack of faith and disloyalty to God. And now here's this young guy, Jeremiah, coming to them as a prophet saying, hey, folks, you know, buck up here. Not, not everything's lost. You know, you may have got yourself into this mess, but God's got a plan to get you out of it. He's got a plan, and it's coming in the form of this new covenant. So let's, let's just turn in our Bibles to Jeremiah 31. Um, so chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, uh, that's going to be about two-thirds-ish through your Bible in the Old Testament. And this is Jeremiah speaking to the people uh, of what God had told him to say. Set up on this. Thanks. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is a covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put the law in their minds and in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And I'll just interject here. This is a really important distinction between the law of the old covenant where despite God having loved those Israelites like a husband, as he says, they were unable to keep his commands because of their human frailty. And wherein is this new covenant requires the law to be in the hearts and in the minds of the people. In other words, not in physical deeds anymore, but in heart change. I'll go on and continue with verse 34. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now that was Jeremiah 600 years before Christ, preaching to a lost people that there was hope coming in a way of a new covenant. So you can see that not only does this prophecy of Jeremiah define the difference between the old and the new covenants, but it actually validates that Jesus didn't just show up spouting off cult wisdom. He was the, the real deal. Jesus' new covenant validated what Jeremiah had foretold 600 years earlier, and vice versa. Jeremiah gave testament or validation to what Jesus was telling us regarding his new covenant, that big deal. So you see, the new covenant, although a lot of us associate it with the New Testament, actually belongs to the Old Testament because that's where it was introduced first. And that's the fundamental relationship between the Old and the New Testament. They validate one another. They give testimony 
or testament to one another. The old foretells the new, and the new validates what the old had foretold. So Jesus was the real deal. Now let's move forward 600 years. 600 years have passed, and now Jesus is here, and he's proclaiming this new covenant. And Jeremiah said this would happen, but there's a massive resistance to this, and Jesus is constantly being challenged uh, by the religious leaders of the time because they're holding on desperately to the old ways of sacrifice and deeds and rituals. They don't want to believe this guy who's telling them, like, hey, you just got to have a heart change, man. They don't want to believe that. Jesus is trying to teach that this is not a one-way deal, that it requires us to do something, and that something no longer requires us to barbecue animals at the altar. It simply requires us to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That was his command to us. So now that we've established that Jesus is the real deal, and that new covenant is the real deal, Let's fast forward to an apostle, Matthew, and hear what he said about this command of love. And Matthew is one of Jesus' original apostles, so he actually traveled with Jesus, and then he wrote about it as his account. So he's got some serious credibility when it comes to recounting what Jesus taught. In this passage, Jesus was being challenged by some of his doubters as to what was the greatest commandment. So let's turn to it now and see how this plays out. This is the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 22. So Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. Uh, chapter 22, verse 34 to 40. Uh, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus has silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Now Sadducees and Pharisees were Jewish leaders at the time. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. He said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, he said. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law of the prophets hang on these two commandments. So this here, folks, this is what love is all about. Those two verses define the very essence of love and how it should apply to our relationship with God and with our neighbors. And they describe a really subtle little distinction from one another. There are two commands here. Is that still up? Let me just put that back up there, uh, Luke. There are two commands here. The first and the greatest is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, your mind. The second, although like the first, love your neighbor yourself, is not described with the same intimacy. You see, loving the Lord your God requires that you separate the love of your heart from the love of your soul, and from the love of your mind, and love God uniquely on all of those different intimate levels. And it describes the deepest love that we can experience. And only when we know this deep, deep love, which is agape love, can we apply it to the second command that Jesus said is like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. And as we know, we're not to be self-loving. We're not to be self-indulgent. So we're not to love our neighbor or strangers with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind as we love our Lord, but we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, unselfishly, to care for them as we would ask them to care for us. It's the golden rule, right? It's the golden rule. So we can't truly love one another unless we first understand the true nature of love, agape. 
And the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they couldn't understand this command of loving your neighbor because they didn't understand the fullness of loving the Lord first. And our neighbors today are like the Sadducees and the Pharisees of yesterday. They need to see agape in action. And that's where we come in as Christians, to show them firsthand what agape is, for us to literally agape our neighbor, to show them what love is about. And this, this theology of prophecy and, and covenant is so important to understanding the context of Jesus' command to love. And in order to truly understand love in that biblical context, we need to understand who it was that gave that great command and did he have the God-given authority to do so? And yes, he did, because Jeremiah and others foretold of his coming and of his authority. And he said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And I wonder what, what our neighbors would say about us if our neighbor was a stranger, maybe. You know, if our neighbor was... Maybe that hitchhiker that we passed by on the highway because we didn't pick her up because we thought he or she might dirty our clean car. Or, you know, maybe our neighbor is a, an addict on the side of the road that we say, oh, he'll just spend it on booze or, or drugs. Or if our neighbor was someone that chose a completely different lifestyle than our own or had a different worldview. You know, those people at work that just don't quite fit into our group or our circle of friends. And if you're a young person at school, you know, maybe that that kid that's a little awkward and gets left out a lot, right? Those are our neighbors. You see, they're everywhere, and we don't often see them as neighbors because we see them as strangers. And we certainly don't treat them with the same respect as our friends or our family, and certainly not the same respect we treat God with. But if we could learn to treat them with respect to the golden rule and love them as we would have them love us, we would be fulfilling Jesus' great command, which is love. And not the love of family or friend, but agape love, that universal broad brush of love, the love that Jesus showed for us when he went to the cross. You know, So today we've looked at what love is in a few different contexts, and, and hopefully we can understand and appreciate that they're all equally important but that they are separate and distinct from one another, and that it's really important, really important to prioritize them, particularly that universal form of love, which is agape. And if, as we leave here today, I pray that there's one thing, that one word, agape, just gets burned into our hearts and that we never forget that Greek word when we're challenged by a situation or an individual that requires extra grace. And that that word agape comes to mind and we remember and reflect on what Jesus said was second only to loving God, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father.